Greetings from Hear Her Sports. This is Elizabeth Emery. In this episode, I talk to Alaskan printmaker Sarah Tabbert. In the fall of 2014, I spent two months in Homer, Alaska, and absolutely loved it, so it was a real pleasure to talk to her. She and I talked about ski joring with her Alaskan Huskies and about living off the grid in her rural Fairbanks house. So let's get on with it. Here's Sarah. Uh, well, thanks for agreeing to uh, be interviewed. Oh, you're welcome. This is a this is a pretty interesting project you've got going. Yeah, it's 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 been yeah, it's been very great. One of the things I want to talk about is ski joring. Okay. I think the first thing is probably you should describe it. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a it's a sport that I'm not completely up on my history, but I think it began around in the early 1900s with horses, and it's sort of been adapted to what's available wherever people are, and in Alaska anyway, and I think most places, it involves hooking yourself up to dogs while on cross-country skis. So you are attached to usually one, two, or three dogs. You have a belt that is... A little bit like a combination between a climbing harness and a diaper. It's a super sexy piece of equipment. And then from there, you're hooked into a, a line that has a bungee in it so that when the dogs pull, you don't get jerked off your feet. And then at beyond the bungee, there's there are separate lines for the number of dogs that you have. And they wear harnesses like you would see in a dog mushing team. And there are different ways of configuring them depending on what you're doing and where you're going. And what kind of skis are you using? Are you using skate skis or traditional skis? Well, again, that depends on that depends on what you're up to. If you are racing and if you are on trails that are groomed and wide enough, usually it's on skate skis. And I pretty much use skate skis everywhere I go. I have a couple of, I have a pair that's a little bit shorter because a lot of my trails around my house are on the narrower side. But uh, people certainly are on classic skis and um, if you're doing some backcountry travel, let's say you've got, you're pulling a sled as well as skiing, then you might well be on cross um, classic or backcountry skis too. Do your, are your dogs enjoying this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are having a very good time. We have, we have five dogs, and, of course, I really can only take two, maybe three, safely, so whoever gets left behind will pitch a fit. But they, yeah, they, they really like it. I looked at some videos, and it looks like it's all about speed and just for the skier, just managing the speed. Well, that's probably why those guys are taking the videos, because it looks like that. Um, again, it all depends on how far you're going and what kind of dogs you have. It, um, racing, yeah, definitely. The shorter distance stuff is, is all about speed. But it is, it's a little bit less crazy when you get into doing stuff that's longer distance and the dogs settle down and you kind of get into a pace and... Um, Particularly in my case now, I have a whole bunch of older dogs, and and I have to do quite a bit of work. They're they're not they're not the young 
full of fire crazy things that they used to be, which has both advantages and disadvantages. Are you using it as a sort of a fun outdoor activity or are you doing it for transportation? Oh, mostly it's just a fun outdoor activity. In the past, when my dogs were younger, I did do quite a bit of uh, more backcountry overnight or two to three day trips. We have some pretty easy to access public use cabins not very far from Fairbanks and it it was fun to plan trips and use the dogs for that. I mean, that's still recreation. They're certainly not taking me to the grocery store or anything like that. And and how did you learn how to ski jour and how did you train your own dogs? I did train my own dogs. I was thinking about this this morning how to sort of describe the entry into the sport. So it started by being when I moved back to Fairbanks. I didn't grow up with dogs, so I really started from point zero on that side. And a friend of mine gave me a retired sled dog, and she wanted nothing to do with pulling. She was she was done with all of that. But I really liked the personality of the husky. They're they're fun dogs. They're pretty independent. And then if a couple of years later, the same friend offered me a puppy. He'd had a litter, and suddenly I found myself with this big, energetic animal that I needed to do something with, and huskies have a tendency to wander, and where we are is kind of in a in-between place. It's not way out in the sticks, but it's pretty rural in there. You can run into trap lines, and people are not exactly shy about shooting dogs from time to time, so you, you can't let your dogs run loose. So I needed to do something to get this guy some exercise. And I'd seen people ski during, and I thought, well, that looks like fun. So I took a, I took a workshop, and I'd skied a lot as a kid. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself then, and certainly not even now, anything like an expert cross-country skier, but um, I was competent. And so I put those two things together, and it was pretty. It was pretty bad at the beginning. <laughs> if you if you think about being out on the trail in the snow, and you've got, you know, you've got this kind of crazy animal, and he doesn't exactly know what he's supposed to be doing, and there's infinite possibility to get yourself wound up in the lines that are attached to the dogs or they can decide they want to go a different direction than you want to go or you might just plain fall down at an inconvenient time. So it it was not very pretty for a little while. And, How long? Um, oh, I would say the, <laughs> the first couple of years at least that I was doing it. And, and of course, because I'm stubborn, I decided, well, maybe I'll get another dog. So then I was ski during with two not particularly manageable large huskies. But I always felt like I was more willing to look stupid and struggle at it than give it up. It was it was still more fun and people were patient with me. The other the other aspect of this is that you're often doing it on multi use trails. So you might come around a corner and, oh, look, there's a 12-dog dog team coming at me head on. What am I going to do about this? And figuring out how to, you know, stay on your feet and get out of their way and 
get your skis and poles and dogs out of the trail. It took a while, and as dogs get older, they get mellower, and they learn what they're supposed to do. If I had been, if I had been smarter about it from the start, I probably would have gotten my first dog as a, maybe a dog that didn't work out in a sled team, but already knew a little bit about what they were supposed to be doing. I guess the the thing that I've lucked out with is that every dog that I've had, except for my first one, they all want to pull, and that's that's key to the whole endeavor. <laughs> one of my best friends is off at the International Federation of Sled Dog Sports World Championship in Halliburton, uh, Ontario right now competing. Oh. So I'm trying to find some information about how that's going, and I don't see much yet, but they I think they just got there yesterday. That's impressive. So that's all very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but she's, she's pretty brave to take that on. Do you have to qualify? You do, yeah. We had a couple of races here last winter that were qualifiers, and then there I think there probably were a couple others down closer to Anchorage that were. So, yep, she loaded up the dogs and drove to Whitehorse and flew off to flew off to Canada or the flew off to Ontario. That's a whole nother ball game bringing a bunch of dogs. Oh, I know. It sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> I want I want nothing ever to do with putting a dog on an airplane. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, so she's flying but, with all the dogs. Holy cow. Yeah, well, that I guess that's, that's the, way, the only way. That's the way it goes. And she's only taking two, but think about people who are bringing teams. There's a anybody who's a serious mushing competitor has has got to figure out ways to get your dogs places that you can't drive to. Wow. As I said, that's a whole nother thing I hadn't thought about. Yeah. 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 (laughs) How are you going to, how are you going to get back from Nome after you run the Iditarod? You're probably not going to turn around and walk back down the trail. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) I mean, even for you, how do you get the dogs to the race and then what happens? Well, it's pretty simple because I don't really travel and I don't race all that much, but they just get loaded in the car and and off we go. And then when you get there, generally speaking, races either, most of the time are either one-minute interval starts or two-minute interval starts. And it is, unless you're somebody who is lucky enough to have dogs that are really, really well-behaved, and you're super strong, it helps to have somebody there to help you get to the start line because things get pretty exciting, and you're trying to get your skis on, and the dogs are jumping around and getting tangled up, so it's nice to have somebody there, and then you're sort of... So each person is, each person is starting the race by themselves, and it's sort of time trial-like, not mass start-like? Well, sometimes there are sometimes there are mass start races too. Most of most of what we have here are interval starts, but we do at least the the ski jerk club that I'm most involved in. We put on one race that's a mass start, which is a whole other interesting level of excitement. Yeah, the, and the thing about the intervals, the interval starts though, is that 
often, even though you would think you would just kind of be out there by yourself, there's stuff that can happen to you along the way on the trail. You might wipe out. There might be a moose in the trail that you have to wait for or get around in some way or another, or the person the person ahead of you might be slower than you and you would end up passing them. So there's often there's often more interaction between competitors in those races than you might think. And, and depend also de- depending on what kind of a race it is and where it's held, sometimes you might be on the same course competing with people who are doing shorter or longer distances, so you might end up catching them um, at different points in time. So everybody is out on the course pretty much at the same time or sort of sequentially ongoing? Yeah, yeah. And you're competing with other women or with men and women? Most of the time, at least here locally, it is with men and women. And it's funny to talk about that. That that is definitely for me was an afterthought to realize, oh, yeah, that's that's what we do. And it is it seems to be it just seems to be such a non-issue in terms of any aspect of the sport. When you go and you look at like I was just looking at the world championships that are going on right now and they are divided into gender categories. But here, it just seems like there's so many different factors that can play into it that there are some days when possibly a male skier might have the advantage based on conditions and where they fall in the lineup and a whole other bunch of variables. And, and again, I would have to look at things, but I, I definitely feel like the uh, women skiers have just, uh, ski jurors have just a good as good of a track record of winning things as the men do. And is is that traditionally the way that this sport has been run? Is the men and women racing together at the same time, or is this something that's happened recently? Again, I don't I don't really know. And you had sent me that that note about oh, what was it? An equestrian event that where where people are competing all together too. And I wonder if it has something to do with ski during coming possibly coming out of horse related sports and maybe Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's yeah. a, maybe that's a tradition that I I that's just speculation. I don't know that for sure. Hmm. That is interesting. But yeah, when I when I go to a race it's it's nothing that I think about and it doesn't ever seem to be a factor in terms of sportsmanship or or anything that happens in the competition. And is it an issue for anybody? I mean, have you ever heard anybody saying, oh, man, I wish I were competing just against men or just against women? No, I have never heard that. I think there there are always some individual players that I, I certainly think people would prefer not to compete against, but I think they're that that can be as much the case as with men with women as with men i i yeah i don't think i've heard anybody say that if you think about it there there are advantages to being really physically strong and there are also depending on the conditions there are advantages to being smaller and lighter too right and i would also bet that a lot of it has to do with how you've trained your dogs which has nothing to do with one or the other 
Yeah, yeah, and the relationship the relationship that you have with your animals and how you're communicating with them and what they think they're supposed to be doing that's a whole that's a whole other aspect of the sport too. I remember you saying when you were here that you took uh, cross country ski lessons, and so you're constantly trying to improve your own skiing. Yeah, yeah, that has definitely helped a lot. We have. I think in Fairbanks we probably have the longest good cross country ski conditions anywhere in the US. We can we can be on skis from sometime in November, November uh, and some years all the way into May and that brings a lot of great skiers to Fairbanks. So with great skiers come great coaches and there are even people who are willing to work with mediocre middle-aged folks like myself to try and improve their skills. And I've been working pretty diligently at that for, I don't know, probably the last five or six years. I head off to ski class two or three times a week, and it's definitely made a big difference. I would The bar is set pretty high to call yourself a good skier in this community, so I won't call myself that, but I'm, I'm definitely getting better. And what's, what's your favorite thing about ski joring or skiing or... I think maybe the best part of ski during is that on days when it's cold and dark and you might not have the motivation yourself to get out and do stuff, you have to pass by this dog that's spending its entire day looking at you saying, when are we going to go, 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 and that's pretty hard to say no to. And often, once you... Once you just get out there, you have a great time, but it's added incentive to get out and do that. And then skiing is just, I think it's always been my favorite outdoor activity. It's such good exercise. And again, once you get out there and get going, even even on the cold days, our winters are, um, our winters are cold and dark, but we have... Uh, most of the days are pretty bright and sunny, so it's it's really nice if you can get outside during the daylight. I, I didn't realize that, that it was uh, sunny during the day there. I sort of pictured yeah, gray. Yeah, for, for all three or four hours of it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, right now I'm looking at bright sun that's just coming up over the hill, and it's about 20 below at my house. I can handle a lot of cold with the sunshine. Yeah, it. I would far prefer this than than the overcast alternative. Yeah. So, how often do you compete, either in ski joring or in in skating, or skate skiing or skiing? Um, I find I don't have a whole lot of appetite for competition, and I think some of this, and you might relate to this as well as an artist, is that. I feel like so much of my professional life is about competition and of course it's different you're not it's not like it's not like we're going to art races but I feel like that side of what I do that takes up all the interest that I have in competing and then some so I find that if I I might do one or two ski during races a season maybe one or two ski races and a couple of running races in the summer and and I'm good that's that's enough for me and I I I much prefer the longer distance events over 
any of the short stuff. Also, I, I find that racing just takes a lot of time, and being somebody who's self-employed, I have to be really careful about how I'm using my time. So if I don't care that much about competition, I can go and do what would happen in a race in an hour, whereas it seems like it eats up three-quarters of your day if you go off to an event. Sarah, you you just said exact. I mean, that was me <laughs> saying exactly <laughs> the same thing. And yeah. people don't understand that, so it's really interesting to hear hear somebody else say that. I also think that because I am working by myself a lot of the time, the benefit maybe not so much with the ski during, although there is a there is definitely a social component component to that. I do go out um, ski during with with friends in addition to just by myself, but with the, with the skiing and, and running in the summer, that's kind of the way that I connect with other people. It's pretty easy to get down in your own solo studio work and forget that you know, it might not be a bad idea to interact with some other humans once in a while. <laughs> to talk to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> keeps, you, keeps you from getting too much weirder than you already are. Right. Well, you you talked a little bit about uh, Fairbanks. So tell me, because I sort of picture you, I don't know, I have a a very romantic picture of you in your house in Fairbanks. (laughs) Why don't you describe it so I can stop making stuff up? Uh, Well, right now we are just past solstice. So the light is, we're just starting to be able to see a difference in the light. But it got light here about, oh, about 10 o'clock and by... 3.30 3.30 or so, it's it's going to be well on its way to getting dark. And in terms of temperature, a 20 below day in the winter is, is not remarkable. We've had pretty warm winters the last two winters, but apparently, according to the weather forecast, we're, we're scheduled to get it next week. It's supposed to be 40 to 50 below for an extended period of time, um, which I'm not super excited about. What does it feel like and to go outside in 40 below? Believe it or not, you do get used to it. It's it's all there's that saying of there's no bad weather, there's just bad clothes and and I believe I I believe in that. So as long as you're dressed appropriately, you're fine. It's a little bit harder with the with skiing in those super cold temperatures just because you have to have so many clothes on that it gets a little harder to function. But it's it's not that bad and and it doesn't generally go on for too long. And the dogs are fine, of course, right? The dogs are fine. The dogs that I have, I have Alaskan Huskies, and they're, although mine spend the bulk of their time in the house these days, they're definitely made for these conditions. People who are really competitive and interested in going super fast have shorter-coated dogs that are, more of a hound mix, generally speaking, and they require a little bit more special care, but mine are pretty low maintenance. Did you guys have snow last year, or am I remembering incorrectly that you had less snow than normal? We we did okay. Anchorage, Anchorage really had terrible snow conditions last winter, I think, and the winter before. We got a big dump of snow in November, and then it basically didn't snow again for the rest of the winter, just a little bit, tiny little bit here and there. So 
we were able to we were able to ski all winter and it was fine but by the end of the season it was kind of like skiing on white concrete everything was pretty pretty hard you didn't want to fall mm-hmm. <laughs> are, are you noticing climate change specifically at Fairbanks uh yeah things especially as somebody who grew up here i can i can definitely say that there there are some strange changes in in the weather and the last few winters in particularly have not been as cold as they have historically been and just just strange strange patterns of wetness and there's some different uh insects that have been infesting some of the trees and just there's there are a lot of there are a lot of shifts in in vegetation and weather that are definitely apparent for sure it's nothing that affects us here yet the same way that the coastal many of the the smaller coastal communities are feeling it the ones that really depend on being protected by uh, sea ice from the winter storms and coastal erosion and things like that but you know things like forest fires or the thawing of permafrost there's there's a lot that can happen here with climate change so we're we're definitely watching what's going on very carefully and then in the summer by well by february or march we start getting in march we start getting tons of daylight back so march is actually my favorite month of the year here i i have a rule that i don't leave fairbanks in march it's light until about 10 o'clock at night and the temperatures are usually pretty moderate and the snow is still good so that's a great time to be up here doing stuff and then in the summers from the end of may through really into august we basically have 24-hour daylight definitely changes lots of things for people and activities you can you can basically do whatever you want any time of the day or night. And what brought you back to Alaska after living in Lower 48? When I was in the middle of graduate school, I started working at a lodge in Denali National Park in the summers. I was going to school in Nebraska and decided that I just really didn't need any more Midwest summers at that point in time. And it was a good way to make money to help pay for school and once I got back up here, I think I realized, oh, you know, there's some there's some stuff that's special. So I think at that point I started making making some moves to set myself up to come back here. And at the time I figured, well, you know, I'm 30. If it doesn't work out, I'll I still have time to change course and go someplace else. But it seems to have at least worked out enough to keep me here. You reminded me that I wanted to ask you about growing up. Were you active? Was your family active growing up? Yeah, we were. We were active. I would say that we were. We were active, but not necessarily in terms of sports. My my parents are kind of adamantly uninterested in athletics. So, although we got outside a lot, and I did in in high school, I I did some running and some skiing. Definitely, it was that that end of things was not not a focus of my family. But we we were hiking and camping and skiing. And I, as a high schooler, junior high and high schooler, 
I was able to basically go wherever I wanted to go on a bicycle. I had um, very non-helicopter parents, so if I could get there under my own steam, I could pretty much go wherever I wanted to. Is this cycling good in, in Fairbanks? Well, we we have a lot of um, we have a lot of folks who ride. We don't have one thing about Alaska is we just, we don't have as many roads as you guys have, so the options are somewhat limited for road riding. But one thing that's happened in the last couple of years is that the the whole fat tire bike thing has really really exploded here in Fairbanks and particularly last winter when the trails were so hard, they were great for cycling, not not so necessarily so great for skiing. So you see a, a lot of winter bikers now, hmm. which is kind of fun because you can be off of the, you don't have to worry about cars and you can get out and explore. A lot of, a lot of the trails are not good or, or really not even accessible in the summer because they go through so much wet lowland. But in the winter, you can you can get out on a bike and, and go all sorts of places that you can't go in the summer. There are also a lot of, we're lucky here to have a couple of really nice trail systems that are designated just for skiing in the winter. So if you don't want to see anybody who's not doing anything but skiing, you have plenty of plenty of that to be had, too. And who's maintaining those trails? One set of trails is uh, maintained, is a, it's on the university campus property, and I believe that they maintain them in cooperation with the Nordic Ski Club, and then the other big set of trails is maintained by our local borough, which is sort of the equivalent of a county. It's kind of the larger municipal structure outside of the city. So they are maintaining them as well, again, in cooperation with the Nordic Ski Club. And they're grooming them for skate ski. Grooming them for skate skiing and setting track. And wow. they, are, they are spectacular trails. I mean, we are so lucky. And they're both free public access. You are, of course, supposed to contribute to the trail grooming fund, uh, but you don't you don't have to pay to play. You can just you just go and go skiing. And having done a little bit of cross country skiing in Montana, I quickly learned that that is not something <laughs> that is common in the rest of the country. After living in Alaska for two months, what really struck me was how rugged and adventurous the women were. Does oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't doesn't strike you. Oh, oh, they're they're definitely that that is definitely the case. I mean, there's always there's always somebody who's ten times tougher than I am. Whatever <laughs> whatever it is that I'm doing. Yeah, I think I think there is there is something to that that people. Yeah, people don't maybe don't feel as inhibited or perhaps people are a little bit more open to different ways of conducting your life in all sorts of aspects. So, yeah, I think I think that's probably true. And describe your living situation and uh how you get heat and water and yeah. <laughs> well, I live in a probably 
If you say optimistically, two-thirds finished house. Brandon and I own about, we have about 95 acres down in the bottom of Goldstream Valley, and he's a carpenter, so we're doing this out of pocket and doing the work on our own. So the schedule for completion is a very long time frame, it would appear. But we don't have any building codes, so we can take as long as we want. And we are on permafrost, which is ground that is hopefully permanently frozen, but there's a, a layer of ice under the topsoil. So you don't want to disturb that with the heat from your house. So our house is about oh, four feet off the ground on pilings, and it does shift around a little bit. So from time to time, we have to jack up one side of the house or the other side of the house. And we, largely because we are on permafrost, but also due to some budgetary constraints, we don't have a septic system or plumbing. So we have an outhouse and we haul water by five-gallon jugs, which I'm hoping to get out of that business before too long with a water tank. But we heat the house, I would say, in the winter. We're probably two-thirds wood heat and one-third heating oil, and the same with my studio, which is a separate building as well. So there's a bit of, there's a bit of effort just in day-to-day everyday life that I think some people take for granted. I'm always super excited when I can go someplace and just turn on the water and take a shower. So describe a typical day. Oh, I, in the winter, I'm usually up in the morning and working in the studio while it's still dark. And then about lunchtime, I make a, make a decision about the rest of the day. And if I've gotten enough work done, it's really nice to get out and take some dogs for a run while the sun is up, and then I'm usually back at work or running some errands in town, and yeah, my, my day is usually a combination of work broken up with outdoor activity. I like, to, I like to set up a ratio where the skiing or doing stuff outside is the reward for getting the work done, so depending on how disciplined I've been in the rest of my life, um, I can earn a certain number of hours of play every day. I like that. <laughs> I think I need to adopt that. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. People talk about it being difficult to get themselves out to get exercise in the winter. And for me, it's it's the opposite. I've had to take a pretty hard line with myself because, oh, look, another another day has gone. And all I've done is go skiing for five hours. I really can't do this. Nobody, I'm lucky that some people will pay me to do art. Nobody will ever pay me to go skiing. So I have to to be careful with that. And I I know that your artwork is based on nature. Do you feel like your artwork is also based sort of on your physical activity within nature? I mean, is there any component of the, your involvement of being outside? Oh, that's interesting. I haven't ever really thought about it that way. I know that a lot of the things that I see, I arrive at by physical activity. I've never been particularly good at doing art in the outdoors. I'm definitely not a, a outdoor painter or 
I can do some sketching sometimes, but I once I'm outside, I just want to keep going. So I rely a lot on sketches and photographs to bring information back to me. But it's definitely being being physical outside is the thing that gets me to the stuff that I want to look at. Do you feel that you're an athlete? Do you, would you call yourself an athlete? Hmm. I usually don't. I guess maybe I think of an athlete as somebody who who for whom this is a bit more a key part of their identity. And for me, this is sort of my secret. Um, <laughs> this is sort of my private life. So I usually don't. But I guess I I do a fair number of athlete-like things and have turned in some, you know, reasonably athletic performances <laughs> in the events that I do compete in. So um, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to take on that label. Are there any athletes that you look up to? Oh, there, there are a lot of people. Whenever anybody asks me for specific names, my mind immediately goes blank. But one kind of general category of people that I look up to is there are some amazingly fit and talented women in this community who are in their 60s and 70s, and those are the people that I am, I am always impressed with. And, you know, there are 65-year-olds who run marathons and can just kick my ass, and, boy, I'm, it, it's nice to have that. It's nice to have that role model ahead of you as you're as I'm progressing closer and closer to that part of my life myself to know that you know this this is if I play my cards right and I take care of myself that this is something that I can keep doing for a long long time. What's been the most difficult moment in Alaska doing something athletic? Uh the, well the most difficult moment for me was probably Oh, probably eight years ago, I was out with a couple of my dogs, and luckily, I was I was very close to home because I was the only one who was here at the mo- at the time. Brandon was working in Hawaii that winter, and I I hooked a tree with my ski, and you have that forward momentum of two two and three year old dogs and. Something has got to give, and in that case, it was my knee that gave. And I have never really, I'd never really been injured before. And that experience of hurting myself and then realizing, oh, it's February, I'm in Fairbanks, I heat with wood, I haul water, I'm by myself, and I can't walk. That was a, <laughs> that was a pretty difficult time. The other inter- the interesting thing about that too is that the the people who came to help me the most were the other members of the skier club here in Fairbanks and that was that was another kind of clue to me why it's important to get out and connect with other people like oh it's good to have people who know you well enough to want to help you when you really need some help they probably also had sympathy or or empathy maybe of the yeah, predicament yeah. that you were in. Yeah, yeah, you can you can see oh this <laughs> this could easily happen to any of us. So that was difficult but just in terms of challenges, I love to ski, I like to run, I don't love to run. 
But I've been, the last, I think, five years now, I've been training in the summers to do our local Equinox Marathon, which is one of the more difficult marathons you can come by in the country. There's a huge amount of vertical gain, and there always seems to be, most years, some sort of weather event that accompanies the race. And just getting through that thing has been there are there are moments in that race that are very very hard for me even though I do I do a good job of getting myself ready inevitably there's some point along the way where I think I think I'm going to die or I think I'm going to quit so that's that's my personal challenge and then I do uh I usually do there's a a corresponding sort of cross country ski marathon here in the spring that's a 50-kilometer race, and I usually do that if I'm in town, too, and so that's about 30 miles, I think. And I would, I would be interested in doing longer ski and, and ski gear races. I won't say that it's not hard, but it's, a, it's not quite as punishing on the body over the long haul. Do you have a, a, like a training routine or... You know, like really specifically in terms of, you know, I'm going to do intervals today and do endurance tomorrow, that kind of thing? I let my ski classes usually dictate that for me. I am pretty good at getting out and doing the longer distance stuff by myself. That's not a problem. I will never do intervals unless somebody else is making me do them. So I set that up so that somebody else is making me do them. And I do the same thing with running as well. I, I'm part of a, a women's running group where we meet weekly and get put through our paces on the track. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really helpful. Do you have any favorite foods or, or clothing or anything like that? Well, food, I'm pretty much a fan of food in general, so... That would probably take longer than we have to talk about. <laughs> That's another reason why I like to be active in the winter. The party barge can catch up with you, especially this time of the year. But in terms of clothing, I am a big fan of all of, I think we talked about this a while ago, but I'm a big fan of all of the nice wool, washable wool clothes that are out right now, and those seem to do the trick. Uh, for us here, in all sorts of weather, you can you can get sweaty and it dries out quickly. And particularly as a person who doesn't have regular access to laundry facilities, it's nice to have some stuff that you can wear a couple of times and doesn't stink like the polypro stuff does. Where do you do laundry? Well, I have two choices. I can either... Go to our local laundromat, which is uh, not the most pleasant experience in the world. Or we do have a washing machine in our house. I can do laundry, but I have to I have to hook it up to a bucket and take the water out and dump it outside. So I have to pay attention to what the washing machine is doing or else I'm going to flood the floor with water because the drain that we use in the summer is frozen up in the winter. And that's what I've been doing. That wouldn't work for me. I'm bad at uh, paying attention. Yeah, I've been threatened that if I if I screw up, then I get to replace the insulation under the house. So oh. I pay pretty good attention. <laughs> Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Okay. 
Well, you can keep calling me. I mean, I like talking to you. So <laughs> right. we, can, we can do this. You know, we can do this once a week all winter. That's fine right. by me. Because Hear Her Sports is a new podcast, please take a few minutes on iTunes to rate it or even write a review so more people can find out about it. There's a yellow iTunes link on the upper right side of hearhersports.com. The Hear Her Notebooks are now available and have started to ship, ordered directly from the website. Support the female athletes you know by attending a women's sporting event or watching one on TV. Follow us on Instagram for some images of what's going on. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.